It be too late to alter course, matey. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove. And mark well me words, matey. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis from scottartis.com. And I'm Heather Artis from blackpearlminute.com. Thanks for joining us for Minute 98 of The Curse of the Black Pearl. No problem. Yeah, there's some mixed news regarding the latest Pirates of the Caribbean 5 box office, depending on the headlines or perspective you're taking. The film launched overseas last week and then added more territories over the weekend to bring its international footprint up to 90%. 90% of the market that it's actually going to play into. Oh, wow. In its maiden voyage, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales has grossed $208.8 million through Sunday. That's international. And then stateside, the lower-than-expected haul, according to sources, says it was $62.6 million for the three days and $77 million. You know, we include the Memorial Holiday on yeah. that. Internationally, Pirates of the Caribbean 5 really had the weekend to itself, so its booty ended up at $271.4 million globally through Sunday, thanks in big part to China, where it grabbed $67.9 million. The whole of the franchise has now crossed $4 billion worldwide, which is Seriously? pretty crazy. Yeah. Huh. At least what they're expecting. I know that there were some of those expected, and we talked about some of those that maybe reaching that $100 million mark for the four-day weekend but 77 million is not too bad but i think it's lower than what a lot of them wanted to see happen yeah and i think some of the latest news that i saw that maybe the kind of that four-day weekend is there you know they're constantly doing updates it maybe was into the 280s or 280 something that i don't recall so um, i mean obviously these numbers are changing as they're getting all the results in but right not too bad but i think they wanted to see a bigger audience boost here in the states definitely which they didn't necessarily get we can compare that to the other films and the opening box office for the previous four movies are as follows and these aren't adjusted for inflation these are just numbers i pulled off box office mojo so on stranger tides in 2011 its opening weekend was 90.2 million dollars at world's end in 2007 was 114.7 million dollars Dead Man's Chest was $135.6 million in 2006, and Curse of the Black Pearl was $46.6 million in 2003, and those are just the opening weekends. Those aren't the global takes right. on that. But you can see that with the Curse of the Black Pearl, it started gaining in popularity and really only had that sub $50 million, but again, that was 2003, Yeah, $2,003, and then it kind of ramped up from there. And then it started to kind of tailor back down. So what does that mean for the franchise? I don't know. It will be interesting to see what actually happens. I mean, were people away for the holiday? That's, I mean, there's always a memorial holiday. Right. And they're saying that maybe this is like a two-year low or more that as far as box office goes. So were people staying away this time? I don't know. There's also talk that the international box office in Europe may have been impacted by the Manchester terror attacks that just happened. Oh, yeah. So people are saying maybe they stayed home from that. So it really is hard to say, and I think we'll get an indication next weekend of where things will actually be headed for the film and maybe the franchise. I did see that Terry Rossio, we know as one of the writers for the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and the franchise, 
has been hired for a screen story for Pirates of the Caribbean 6, and it is announced on his IMDb page. So huh? they're looking at it. We've also heard stuff that they've locked in some of the actors, at least yeah. kind of put them in a contract for Pirates of the Caribbean 10 or through 10. Yeah. Whether that happens, it's all dependent on box office results. So will the franchise rebound? Is there going to be a resurgence? Is the international box office going to help kind of propel that forward and make that a reality? I don't know. I'd really hate to see the franchise dwindle on this particular one, though, because I do, I kind of do want to see where they take it. Yeah. I am curious about it, and we'll talk about some of the spoilers or where that might be going in our bonus episode, because there are some after credits. We all, it's like the Marvel thing. That's the thing now. So typically when you see an after credit, you know that they're preparing for a sequel. Right. But usually that only happens if the dollars are there. They're not going to just throw money at it if it's not going to actually perform. And as I said, I also want the quality to be there. I don't want them just to do it to do it. I'd rather see a nice kind of quality piece come out of it as usual. I just don't want them to force a sequel because they feel like they have to or because they're just trying to make the money, which they are. I mean, that is the root of all movies. Yeah. But I'd really like to see them do that. So check out yesterday's reaction to Dead Men Tell No Tales in our Minute 97. And then keep an eye open for our review episode over the weekend coming up. We can jump into a lot of that stuff. But that's it. So are you ready to go or did you have anything to say? No, I'm ready to start the minute. In the previous minute, Captain Jack Sparrow burst Elizabeth Swan's bubble. No, not that one, you dirty thinking filthy bilge rats. (laughs) The one where she believed Jack was indeed the pirate of the legends. A pirate who could sail the sea turtles and escape marooning on a bit of Caribbean heaven. The same pirate who makes a daring escape with a hoist, steals the HMS Interceptor, and yes is named after a monkey, or vice versa, however that goes. Thanks to a hidden cache of booze abandoned by rum runners, Jack and Elizabeth's hopes of lounging on the beach, drinking rum from a bottle, and dancing drunk around a bonfire at night can proceed as planned with the oh-so-famous A Pirate's Life for Me shanty. Yo-ho, yo-ho! Minute 98 begins with Jack finishing his exclamation about his rum-induced affection for A Pirate's Life for Me shanty with... dot dot dot, love this song. Jack and Elizabeth continue laughing and dancing around the beach fire as he says, Really bad eggs! Just before he falls backward onto the sand. The minute ends with Elizabeth telling Jack, It must be really terrible for you to be trapped on this island. He responds with his arm around her, Oh yes, but the company is... Dot, dot, dot. I had in my original notes the question, Did Elizabeth teach Jack the song A Pirate's Life for Me? I was getting that feeling when watching it, and I never really thought about it in all the previous times I've seen this movie. But it, now with the breakdown, I started getting like these contextual clues or these small clues that sounds like he's never heard this before and she taught it to him. Right, because he says, I'm going to teach it to my whole crew. That's right. So it's like he's never, this is his first time hearing the song. Yeah, so I think he's never really heard it before. This is it. Yeah. She has taught him the song. Yeah. And I don't know if I can read any symbolism into that or not. Is she teaching him how to be a proper pirate? Because a proper <laughs> pirate needs to know a sea shanty, especially yes. a pirate's life for me. It's a Disney movie, for God's sakes. Your pirate should know this song. <laughs> but I get that feeling that that's what's happening. It's actually really funny because I had that, like I said, I had that in my notes is the first thing. That was one question that I had. Yeah. And then when I was reviewing the deleted scenes for the this whole island kind of, well, scene deleted scenes for the scene of the island all that kind of stuff however that goes doesn't quite make sense to have seen so many times in a row (laughs) maybe you like the word scene yeah i guess but she actually does teach him the song so it is confirmed that's what happens this was one of the deleted scenes 
And in this particular one, they're both sitting on the sand and she introduces him to the song. We talked about much of it last episode, a lot of these deleted yeah. scenes and stuff. But this is the one I saved because it actually is rather good character development again. And it moves Jack and Elizabeth to having an actual emotional connection, I thought. Right. This whole particular thing. It's this getting to know each other moment. We saw a little bit of that too with the scars and yeah. him revealing that he actually was doing a lot of that stuff. But that's also partly maybe ego-based. Like, hey, these are really true. Yeah. Believe the stories. This is what I did. But this one, it's more kind of mushy. Mushy-like. Moshy-like. I could use some mushies. <laughs> Off topic. Mushy-like in a way. That's my critical analysis of that. <laughs> well, you know, when you're singing and dancing, that kind of brings a lot of emotion. Well, you it know? does. But the, the deleted scene, they're not singing and dancing. I know. But, I mean... I'm going on to. You're going on already. Dancing How dare you? And singing. How dare you? You're the dancing stuff. I'm trying to bring you mushy stuff here, and you're already trying to get onto the dancing. You're all about the action, aren't you? All about the action. Heather's all skip the foreplay and let's just get me to the pirate action. <laughs> but in the deleted scene, she learns there is truth to the stories about him, and we talked about that. He learns she's been infatuated with pirates in this particular part. And we, the audience, learn this as well, and we get confirmation, I should say, probably more accurately, since we already knew a lot about, or we could guess this about their characters up to this yeah. point. She tells Jack she's worried about Will, and that they need to actually do something, as opposed to what we see in the final product, the final film cut, Yeah, is getting drunk is the answer, the only answer. He does echo that here by giving her a bottle of rum, but he does preface that with some good news. Well... I mean, he gives her some hope, gives some hope back to her, I should say, that they maybe have a month or maybe a little more on the island, at least reserved. So drink and food. Okay. okay? So we skipped some of that because we didn't really hear about that. And we'll see that in, in future minutes when Jack talks about that. But he basically tells her they have a month, maybe more. And to keep a weather eye out for passing ships and our chances are fair that they're basically going to get picked up and be rescued. Huh. So we don't see that. Right. That's all cut out. Essentially what happens is, is they kind of skip all that because it's cut out. So back to the song. She mentions a part of the song when she's asking, what should we do? What can we do? And his reaction is to roll her a bottle of rum on the beach. Yeah. And she grabs the bottle and he basically does a toast to Will. Here's to Will. Good luck to Will. Something like that. And then she sits down with the bottle and says, drink up me hearty yo-ho. As she's about to take a drink, that's when she says that. Jack asks, what was that? It's something she learned as a child when she actually thought it would be exciting to meet a pirate. So that's what she tells him. So it's all part of this lore of hers. This, and then we're seeing a lot of her reading about pirates. Right. Coming out in fruition in this particular minute too. Because she's heard the stories about Jack. She knows the song. Yeah. And she's saying that she's been kind of studying up on this stuff. But she says she won't sing it for him, saying she'd have to have a lot more rum to do that. And he says, how much more? And then the next scene is where we pick up and they're dancing around the fire. It's part of the final cut of the movie. Oh, so okay. that's where we so we kind of miss that whole little emotional scene of her asking about Will, him making a toast to Will, and then him asking about the song and learning the song from her. I for one would have been okay with the added minutes to the movie, and I'm yeah. not talking just about this one. Maybe some of the other ones. And we talked, I don't know, we talked a little bit about that. I don't know. I'm trying to think now. Do I really want the character stuff or do I want the mystic Jack where he's still a mystery? 
But if the decision was made to put it in the movie, I really would have been okay with, say, with the extra character development bits to add to the film. And yes, it's already a 143-minute film. So extending it to, say, 150 minutes wouldn't... Well, for me, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Maybe some people it is. But I'm already invested. In seven more minutes, it's not going to make a big deal right. to me. And we get some added bonus stuff. So maybe there is a good payoff for it, at least character-wise. Maybe not all the deleted scenes, but a few really do move things forward and connect us further to the characters, even Elizabeth and Jack. Yeah. Like I said, it could upset some of that mystery balance with Jack, but if it was in there, I'd have been okay with the extra, say, seven minutes, ten yeah. minutes that they really wanted to do that. Right. It wouldn't have harmed me. No. Just give us more stuff to talk about. Well, yeah, and you know... Except maybe in the episode breakdown, we'd be like, damn it, we have seven more episodes to do <laughs> to finish this film? This kind of gives, you know, all those deleted, you kind of see that they're opening up to each other. I mentioned this in the last yeah. minute about Jack opening up to Elizabeth, but Elizabeth's also opening up to Jack. You know, they're kind of getting to learn, That's getting right. to know each other. They've met here and there. They've had ups and downs, and he's been a, what did she call him? I forget now. On the ship. But they've had their ups and downs, you know, and and this is just kind of almost giving them a relationship with these deleted scenes. Yeah, and I wonder if that's why they ultimately cut it. Because it didn't quite flow, maybe, with stuff that how they wanted their relationship to actually be. Does it really end up flowing properly? Because if they really are that connected, would they have known or understood each other a little bit more or maybe not so much him her but her him and would that have been where they really wanted to go and take things especially with them dancing around the fire because she gets a look when he hands her the bottle in the first place right by the rum cash oh yeah she's scheming there she's scheming and so if we had all this other stuff because those deleted scenes didn't fit right between that yeah it makes it a little bit harder for her to then scheme Jack right. when they're making these emotional connections. Yeah. Why is she still scheming him as opposed to sitting down and talking with him like, here's a plan or yeah. how about we do this? Right. And then they could start doing stuff as opposed to scheming each other. Because then they kind of fall right back into their roles again. Yeah. Of who and how they've been reacting to each other. So if we added these other emotional connections in between that, kind of would have well, been this weird character development arc that then just dissipates and goes away right as opposed to where we actually see them in the final cut of the movie you can't have her continue to scheme with them having that relationship now or you'd have to add another scene where she's proposing an idea he's slapping it down and then she's like okay i tried he's not going to go for it he's just he's given up i'm going to do what i need to do right so you'd have to add even more to explain that. So you got an extra work. 20 minutes there. Yeah. So that was probably why they're, we got to cut it. Let's cut it here. And then this keeps their character still flowing as opposed to then even explaining more of why she went yeah. on this route that she eventually goes on that we'll see in upcoming minutes. Right. I have a few lines I really wanted to talk about as well. And it turns out they fit rather nicely in this minute in the, or the end of this minute. Well, it's really kind of the end of this second act point in the film. So we're departing now from the deleted scene stuff, just to make that clear. And we're getting back into final cut reality here. But there really is so much we can talk around this particular point. So I'm going to try and keep things on track and not go too far overboard. 
while still expanding the idea. It's this idea we have reached a point in the movie where we really know everything we actually need to know to end the movie. All the pieces of the puzzle, all the key elements have been found, and now it's really time to start wrapping things up, or at least for our characters, to move kind of towards the end of the movie. They have everything they need. Let's get to the third act and start to end this story here. Because we know all about the characters. We know about the curse and how to end it. Will has been taken by Barbosa. So all has come together. And the idea is, and the question that we're having as an audience, can our heroes actually make it happen? Can they save Will? The end of the second act is always the place from a storytelling technique that the characters are brought to their lowest possible level before they can be restored and exceed or kind of reach that highest possible level. And that's where Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott take things as the writers of the, well, of the script, of the movie. Yeah. That's how they, and that's basically their view on the first, second, third acts, the beginning, middle, and end, is where they as storytellers want to take things. And this is exactly kind of what they've told us in some of the commentaries work. That's where they're trying to take things. But it's not just for the characters. I mean, as an audience, we are also brought down to a low and are really being set up for that resurgence, a place where we can really, well, maybe possibly attain a high in the third act. Will Jack and Will save Elizabeth is kind of the first question that we get. Yes, they have saved her. But the twist is now that Jack and Elizabeth are in a situation where they need to save Will. Mm -hmm. So twisted it up. And the whole idea for the second act or the end of the second, second act as we move into the third and the end is can they do it before the end of the movie while stranded on an island? And that's the question where we're left at as an audience. There's this idea that everyone is really completely defeated. And that's, I think, where we're at because we really get all these kind of symbols of defeat here. Right. And this is really insightful because it is peppered throughout the entire minute. And then this is, like I said, in the dialogue and the symbolism and some of the stuff that we're seeing. One, we have them getting drunk. The idea is that the only answer is really found at the end of a bottle. A symbol of despair. Let's get drunk. Drink our problems away. That's what Jack is doing. I mean, we can forget about all the other times he drinks and stuff like that. Yeah. But for this particular moment, he's drinking. It's kind of that hopeless. Right. We can't get off. The rum runners won't be here. Or the rum is plentiful. The rum is plentiful, and so we might as well drink it. But he hands her a bottle like, here's the answer. We can't get off the island. Here's what I suggest you do is have some. Yeah. Rum. Another one is Elizabeth saying, it must be terrible for Jack to be trapped on an island. His very name suggests, and is even symbolic, of free as a bird, sparrow. We talked a lot about that yeah. in the previous minutes. Yet here on this island, he's trapped. He's a caged bird. He can't get off. Right. Thirdly, there's the talk of the black pearl. And it's not the black pearl. It's the idea that the pearl is the symbol of freedom. The pearl is a ship and the ship is the symbol of freedom. So any ship is symbolic of this kind of freedom, this escape. So not only do they not have a ship on the island, he has had his ship stolen from him twice. His freedom has been stolen from him. And he's a captain. So he's a captain without a ship. He just doesn't have that direction. He just doesn't have that freedom. And this really is, seems to be the crux of Jack's character. He strives to be free and have that freedom, but obstacles like continue to show up and get in his way and keep him from achieving that. And not to mention, he can't have that by himself because for him to escape in this universe, at least in The Curse of the Black Pearl, he needs the help of someone else. He really needs the help of someone else to get away. Yeah. He can't just do it on his own. Right. Which is interesting because he is kind of this free person and yet he always needs somebody to help him escape. Yeah. We really have hit rock bottom for the characters and are now just waiting for someone to get us to that third act and off the island. 
Gore Verbinski even commented that he wanted something at the end of the second act to be revealed, something that would have changed the third act. And that's not something we got. He says that's one of his big criticisms of the script, is that he didn't get that big reveal. So we had everything we needed to know, except that we were basically stuck on an island. And he wanted the connections or these conversations of Jack and Elizabeth to really have a big reveal. Something that could have popped up that would have affected the ending and brought, well, brought us to the end. Uh-huh. You know, one, one piece that was still a mystery that Jack and Elizabeth figure out. It'd be like, for instance, if Elizabeth had never shown anybody the medallion. For instance, and you yeah, have to yeah, adjust that through the whole movie. But for instance, Barbosa has Will. They're taking him to the. It's like Will has a fake medallion or something. You know, yeah. he made one because he lost. Elizabeth has his. This is all like hypothetical now. Elizabeth has his medallion. He thought he lost it. He reconstructs one in his blacksmith shop. Yeah, he has one. The symbol of his dad and the gift and all that kind of stuff. So he has it. Barbosa thinks that he has the real medallion. They're going there to the island. Jack and Elizabeth are stranded on the island. They're talking and emo- having this emotional connection. And this kind of thing is where Elizabeth then reveals that she has the real medallion. That would be something that would affect and change the third act of the film. Right. That gives them the driving thing that, if I'm guessing, that Verbinski was really looking for. You know, and oftentimes we see that in movies, but we don't really get it here. You yeah. Know, we aren't left with that. Everything else is known. They their sole purpose now is they need to get off the island to go rescue Will. Yeah. That's what the key is. Right. Not that there's some piece, little bit of last corner puzzle piece that's still to be revealed. We don't get that. Right. Unless one of them took the medallion, got the medallion from the monkey before they jumped ship. <laughs> so Jack Sparrow used sleight of hand and pickpocketing exactly. skills to steal from the monkey. That's yeah. possible, but to steal from I don't Jack. think so. <laughs> So that's what I think Gore was really looking for. That was his one big criticism. But yeah. I think that we have kind of the whole final picture coming up. And then we have, you know, 40 some odd minutes left or whatever it is now. Right. 40, well, 43, 46 minutes left. And that's the whole third act, which is pretty crazy to think just for a movie. I mean, maybe not so much by standards today with the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. Movies are continually going into the two hour realm now. Yeah. But maybe not so much at the time. So, yeah, I thought it was really a whole interesting kind of scene of how this particular island and this despair and we're so far down this kind of rabbit hole of being defeated and even as an audience and then seeing all these kind of symbols of defeat and that our characters are kind of giving up at least one has and the other one is maybe pretending to have given up we're seeing that happen but then she starts in this minute to try to boost his thinking again you know Because she's telling him that he'll be positively the most fearsome pirate in the Spanish main. Yeah, I think she's she's not on board with this. She's still scheming. And we saw that when she got the bottle. She's scheming. She's trying to do what she can. Because she knows that she might need him to help get off this thing. Right. So she's trying to build him back up with her scheming. She's building him back up. She knows the key to to Jack's heart is his ego kind of thing. It's the whole storytelling. That's why, you know, he kind of set her... It's almost like he revealed that, no, the story, this story isn't true. Although we see in deleted scenes that the other ones are worse, an audience still guessing, okay, this one isn't, but are all the rest of the stories embellishments or are they true? Did he really do all these amazing things? Yeah. We don't really know unless we see the deleted scenes. And is that really part of the universe, that whole stuff? So we don't know that. 
But he revealed that it wasn't, that he didn't escape off the island with some miraculous swashbuckling adventure kind of stuff. He didn't pull that off. Right. So she knows that he's now kind of down that road of, I didn't give you a sea turtle story here. Like he did when he was on the Interceptor about to go to Isla de Muerta. He still was in that, I'm Jack Sparrow. Don't you know who I am? This is what I do. Yeah. He's now beat down. He doesn't want to get trapped having to build a raft or something that he knows is fruitless. So he reveals it to her. And now that was his moment of, yeah, you know what? I didn't get off. And now his ego's kind of in the the dump. Yeah. He's going to drink some rum and just wait it out and see what happens. She doesn't have time to do that. She's still driven by the wanting to save Will from Barbosa. Yeah. So I think she's still trying to build up his ego, build up his his motivation uh-huh. and see what she can do and get right. out of him. In the end of this minute, you see she's kind of buttering Jack up. And then Jack kind of is taking, I don't know if he's taking it wrong or just thinking she's drunk. But he puts his arms around her and he's like, oh, but the company is, you know, and you kind of know where this is going in Jack's mind. Of course. You know, he's like, oh, you're drunk. I'm going to take advantage of this situation. Yeah, he thinks he's going to get lucky. Yeah. And I had something I was going to say for the next minutes, but since you brought it up now, I'll go ahead and just talk about it. But there was actually that particular scene when I heard Johnny Depp talking about it. Yeah. It was, he said it was like a little uncomfortable because he said when he put his arm around her, he basically said it was like father time. Well, she's so young. Yeah. She's 17. She's this young teenage girl. He's this older guy. And he just said it was like. It was weird. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it it was a whole kind of weird situation. He called it father time, which was, I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Because that's obviously not the connotation there. And the fact that. There's some stuff that happens after that minute where he is actually thinking, hey, I might get lucky with this drunk chick on this island. Yeah. It's just a uncomfortable situation for actual Johnny Depp. Yeah. (laughs) Which is actually interesting because movie stars, you know, they have some liberties against, you know, with them and stuff. But he actually was like a stand up guy. Like, you know, this is a little weird. (laughs) Well, that's pretty awesome, actually. Well, it probably you didn't know. help that Kira Knightley's mother was standing yeah, off that's camera. True. And he's like, this is really, really odd. <laughs> I'm like twice her age. Yeah. I don't know how old he was at the time, but. That's the thing. You know, you know. he's got the mother looking on him. Yeah. She's probably giving him the evil eye, like, hey, just watch your hand, buddy. <laughs> and Kira's like, hey, look at Johnny Depp's holding me. <laughs> There's a lot of rum drinking going on. And I said I pushed this from the previous minute, much to Heather's chagrin, because she's a rum lover, obviously. But rum running. And they mentioned that, that the, about the rum runners. So uh-huh. rum running is basically bootlegging. And Heather knows this actually really well because she comes from and continues her family bootlegging business to this right. particular day. So hence her love of rum. It was not long after the first taxes on alcoholic beverages that someone began to smuggle them. And the British government had revenue cutters in place to stop smugglers as early as the 16th century. Pirates often made extra money running rum to heavily taxed colonies. By 1670, rum was a strong water drawn from sugarcane had become profitable for New England. And this one guy, John Ligon, an English settler in Barbados, was the first to describe the beverage as rumbolian. Alias Kill Devil, a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor. 
<laughs> so why do you want to drink it? <laughs> well, pirate. No, and anybody out there drinking rum, you're a pirate. So that's good news. Yes. Known under such names as Akubi and Rumbuz, it became so popular that by 1686, it was said that they that are poor and wicked too can for a penny or two pence make themselves drunk. Because it was just so cheap yeah. to have so much. The rum was so plentiful and so cheap that you could just, for a penny or two, make themselves drunk. Wow. And that was by 1686. The beverage also lubricated the wheels of the power in 18th century colonial America. And voters were lured to the polls with rations of the beverage. And the average colonist drank vast amounts of it. For much of the 18th century, rich and poor alike consumed rum. Whether as Stonewall, which was a mix of rum and cider... Calabogus, a mix of rum and beer, and I'm probably slaughtering a lot of these names. I'm sure everybody will let me know. And Blackstrap, which was a mixture of rum and molasses. Or then there was the straight Boston brewed rum. If you just wanted it straight. Mixture of rum and molasses. There you go. Might have to give that a try. Then there was Flip, which was cream, eggs, sugar, beer, and rum mixed together and beaten with a poker until frothy. And this was also extremely popular. Flip glasses testify to the gargantuan capacity for consumptions of many New Englanders. Some hold as much as three or four quarts apiece. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And as one scholar put it, the size testifies to the unlimited bibulous capacity of our ancestors. Then there started to be this whole kind of pushback. And we saw it really culminate with the Volstead Act, when there, or the Prohibition. Yeah, I think it was the Volstead Act is what it was called. But starting in, say, the... 17th and 18th centuries okay more i think it was more so in the 18th century kind of the later 18th century that there started to be a lot of this pushback against all this rum sales and stuff and like i said culminated in our eventual and here in america where we outlawed alcohol but in response tavern keepers at the time became creative about ways in which they sold rum for example this was the period of the striped pig scam patrons would pay a sum to see a striped pig and this was usually a pig painted in garish stripes. And then while viewing the pig, they would be given a free glass of rum, thereby circumventing all the newly established temperance rules. So you could pay because they could just give it away. They weren't selling it. Oh, okay. If they were allowed you to were give it away. You were paying for the pig and then you could just give it away. Funny. So they weren't huh. selling it. That's how they got around the rules. And I wanted to point out that that was thanks to the edible vineyard for their history of rum that I pulled some huh. of those pieces from. So. Very long, cool history of some cool stuff. And there was also a lot that was going on with the slave trade in rum, too. Stuff that was coming out of the Caribbean, going to America to be produced, going to Africa or coming from the Caribbean, going to Africa. And Africans themselves were trading rum for people. And it was a really crazy thing. The rum trade was really, really just a huge business. Hence, a lot of the rum traders and the rum runners and then... With the taxes, as I said, they would hide some of their rum or hide all their rum before going to port. So they didn't, A, have to divide it up or share some of these spoils with people in the port or their backers. Like, hey, we don't have any. Yeah. So they were kind of lying and double crossing them. Or then they didn't have to be taxed when they showed up with it. So they didn't want it on board. And then they could do what they needed to do with it. A really interesting, crazy time with bootlegging. But you should know, as your family (laughs) is a bunch of bootleggers. Yes. So that's all I have. And that's basically in honor of Heather that I thought I'd figure I'd end things on rum instead of like a bloody pirate battle or something like that. I think I read at the time it was also men, women, and children that drink all the rum. Well, it's not 
out of the ordinary because I did see some quotes of people at the time, and this is in the 1700s, where they were saying that taverns and rum, that it wasn't just a place for the poor person or the worker, but it was a meeting place for everybody. So townspeople, women, men, uh, they had people that were the political politicians would go to the taverns and drink rum. You also had clergy and priests that would go there. So it just wasn't like the worker after work kind of going to... yeah you know, ease their pain from their backbreaking work. But it was like everybody was doing it. Huh. And in New England, I think in the 1700s, it, like 2 million gallons actually was being imported into New England alone of rum. Wow. To fill that need. And that just tells you how much people were drinking rum yeah. at the time. It's pretty crazy. That's crazy. So that's all I got. Wow. I know. That's been, that's pretty interesting though. There you go. That's a the bit of history. history. Rum history. Even though I knew it all because my family's well, of course you in did. You were part of it. Yeah, yeah. So I'll let Heather get back to drinking rum. Yes. Like Pirate Jack Sparrow or Elizabeth Swan, drinking straight from the bottle, which actually they're called onion bottles from what I understand because of the round base. Oh, like the one that Jack had. Yeah, which are pretty cool bottles, actually. Yeah. I could really use some of those. But like I said, you can go back to drinking it straight from the bottle, and we'll be back tomorrow with Minute 99 of The Curse of the Black Pearl on the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Until then... Let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. Heather! Heather! Pimey, she always disappears right after the show. Get me my grog, she says. Probably at the Faithful Bride Tavern. Again. Heather, are you in there? Bring me my grog, you scurvy barkeep. Mother's love. What are you doing in here? You always take off before telling everyone where they can find us, where the after party is, and how their voicemail may be featured on the show. So get on with it, Savvy. I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. That means no. I know what it means. It means you're getting another rum, and I'm thanking the listeners. Thanks for listening, Scallywags. If you like the show, give us a review on iTunes. It helps us out, and we'd greatly appreciate it. Have a question or comment? Give us a call at 8637-PIRATE. We just might feature your voicemail on the show. You can also give us a shout at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. And don't forget to join the post-episode brawls on Facebook, our Facebook listeners group, and on Twitter. If you're interested in best of clips, you can find us on SoundCloud. All the links are on blackpearlminute.com. It's that easy. Now get out of here, you filthy bilge rats. Yeah.